Hey, this is Scott Warren from the DR Disciples, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Middleheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another week of that which we like to call Focus on Metal. Picking up this week, right where we left off last week, literally right where we left off last week, and picking up on our conversation with guitarist Craig Goldie. Lots of uh, historical stuff this week as he's digging into, you know, early Dio days, going back, looking at Rough Cut, some of the earlier stuff he did. So a lot of uh, good old history talk this week with Craig Goldie, plus, uh, you know, a lot more. So if you want to find out, like, how Craig feels about playing with a hologram, you're going to hear about that this week. And that's just one example of some of the great stuff that you're going to hear Craig talk about this week. Definitely more of a rambling, free form. You know, if the kind of the early on joke last week was that Richie was, uh, you know, designated to talk to Craig and didn't really have any idea what he was talking to him about. Well, this week he really takes it to his advantage and goes to all kinds of stuff, but lots of good early Craig Goldie history this week. So what do you say that... Uh, I just shut the hell up, and we're going to get right back into the chat with Richie and guitarist Craig Goldie. Uh, Craig, do you still have the guitars that you used for the, the Dream Evil record? No, I wish I did, but I wasn't able to hang on to everything. At one point, I had like 17 guitars, I think, or something. And um, some of them, yeah, they just, that. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I did, but no, I didn't. Hmm. Did you Did you find... I want to compare Jafria now to, to Dio when you joined. Um, did you find that the Dio, Ronnie's music was more suited for your style of playing? Because with Jafria, it was Greg's band and he, he was a keyboard player that you were kind of being put a little bit more in the background in that band than you were with Dio. Would that be a fair thing to say? Well, um, yes and no, because in the mix, yes. Um, but because I loved Journey and I loved um, Genesis, and there was other bands, you know, that I loved. I was in a I was in a a band once that was basically centered around um, that type of music, but all instrumental. It was just me and a keyboard player, mm. a local keyboard player here in San Diego, put it together, and that was one of my fondest memories. You know, I love writing with a keyboard player and working with a keyboard player, um, and so. That wasn't so much. And Greg, I never really knew anything about Angel. Uh, the only thing was is that um, I just knew something was going to happen. Like once in a while, I get these little visions. You know, like I said before, I wish I, you know, I think I've told you this story before. And if I haven't, you know, I, I, I wish I'd get a vision of a winning lottery ticket. But um, <laughs> when I was in, <laughs> when I was in Rough Cut, yeah, you know, Ronnie was the producer. And um, Rough Cut had just gotten a record deal on Warner Brothers. And at that time, I remember sitting and listening to Burn, Deep Purple Burn on the Warner Brothers label and having a vinyl record. And I was sitting on, in front of my little turntable, 13 years old, watching that Warner Brothers logo go around and around and around. I was going to be able to be on that record label. So somebody was going to be listening to me 
with that label going around and around and around. I thought, wow, this is amazing. But I didn't really like being in the band because it was so political. I mean, everybody was out for themselves. Everybody had a hidden agenda. It was never really a, a tight ship, you know, <clears throat> with one, one goal. Okay. So at one concert, Greg Jafria uh, approached me and said, I have something I think you might be interested in. Here's my number. Give me a call. At the time I was living at Ronnie's, he still had a couple of dates with, uh, with Sabbath to do. Still, yeah. and so while I was out of town, he, he he let me stay at his house. So I called him, and I went over to, to Greg's house. But before I did, I came up with some sort of an idea, which ended up being "Don't um, don't um, don't tear me down." And uh, so I went over to Greg's house, and I'm watching this this video of him and David Glenn Isley, and all of a sudden, boom! I can see it. I go, "This is going to be big." But I had to leave Rough Cut with Ronnie Kane's deal as a producer, Wendy Dio as a manager, a record deal on Warner Brothers, you know, with, with actually some money there, to a band that had no record deal and had no monetary support with a guy at the time who had a bad reputation. And everybody thought I was crazy. And um, except for Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> he says, Goldie, he goes, don't. Don't get your feelings hurt if we run into each other and I'm with the rough cut camp and I act like I hate you because I have to act like I hate you when I'm around when I'm with them. But I don't. I love you, kid, and I know why you're doing it, and I hope everything works out the way you think it's going to. A year later, rough cut rough cut gets dropped off the label. Jafria has a hit song, and we're touring with my favorite band, Deep Purple, and I get to meet and have the ex most extraordinary one-on-one -on -one confrontation with Richie Blackmore. Wow. I was actually going to ask you, can you remember who you toured with, with Jafria? I know you've answered yeah. the question, Deep Purple. And, 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 and Foreigner, Agent Provocateur. Oh, my God. But the, but the songwriting and all that was still from my heart, even though they didn't use a lot of my songs. You know, I still enjoyed it because I enjoyed that type of music, but it wasn't my favorite. It wasn't my top five, you know, it was in, but it was in my top ten. Okay. But Ronnie was my number one. Okay. And Deep Purple was my number one. And then Rainbow became my number one. So there was two number ones. <laughs> you know. And uh, then so, so then here I am with Jafria, and then now I get Richard Blackmore out of it. Rough Cut, I had Ronnie James Dio. And then all of a sudden, while I'm in Rough Cut, Ronnie turns to me and says, kid, if Vivian ever doesn't work out, you're my first choice. And he stuck to that promise. That's why we only had six rehearsals. So in Dio, when we wrote, it came time, it was easy because we'd already worked together and wrote together in Rough Cut, so we knew it would work. And that first song, Time to Burn, worked out pretty good, you know. And so when we wrote for Dream Evil, it was just, it was like, we got this, you know. Um, he would call me at home at 3 o'clock in the morning, because so, I had, I had a, a wife and, a, and her little girl. Two o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. I just have an idea. I'm like, no, no, I'm awake. You know, in my little room, you know, with my little speaker next to the phone. So back in those days, you could hold the phone with your shoulder by your ear, and I would play the guitar so he could hear it, and, and he would sing to me into the phone. And he'd be like that, like that, yeah, like that. Okay, is that, okay? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thanks. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, thanks. Five minutes later. Five minutes later. Sorry, sorry, sorry. What if we were to try this, you know? So, 
you know, it, then we're at a Christmas party. His whole entire house filled with guests and decorations. He comes over to me, goes, Goldie, come here, I want to show you something. So we go, we go downstairs to a studio, and what seems like five minutes had passed by. We go back upstairs. The whole house is completely pitch black. My wife and her little girl are asleep on the couch, and we're like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> we, just, we just got lost because we loved working together so much. Wow. Wow. Craig, t tell me about standing on the side of the stage, and I'm sure you did this a lot, wa watching Deep Purple play. Oh, God. Luckily, a lot of the times, I just go out into the crowd. I didn't even think about using my, my status to stand on the side of the stage. I did that a couple of times, but because um, that, that where I wanted to stand was Richie's side, so you weren't really allowed <laughs> up there. Yeah. <laughs> I got there a couple of times, but, you know, it wasn't really, I mean, they liked me because I didn't walk around with a sense of entitlement like Greg and Dave did. Okay. And Chuck, you know, me and Cricker really were the only ones who had any kind of sense of humility you know, to be around that band. And um, so we got the most, you know, we were favored more than the rest because we gave them the respect they deserved. And um, so I did get a chance to do certain things that other band members didn't. Um, and they, you know, they didn't understand. Like, how did you, you know, well, if you get off your fucking high horse, you, you'd be doing it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I loved going out into the crowd and just being, just like everybody else, because I was like everybody else. I was just a fan that got in the band. Okay. Okay. Until I started getting recognized. Then it became disrespectful. So I had to kind of like figure out a spot I could sit and listen and watch where no one would, would notice. That was the only hard part, really. It's like, that was the time I was like, God, I, want, I almost wished nobody would know me, but at the same time, I'm grateful that they did. <laughs> okay. Okay, so compare Greg as a producer to Ronnie. Like, is Greg a real hard taskmaster? No, no. Um, and a lot of it is because, um, not that Greg's not a genius, because he is. He's an actual, absolute musical genius. And so is Ronnie. And their methods are different. Um, and they both have about the same size ego. <laughs> but... Um, Greg was more of a celebrity, you know, went in the studio. Ronnie never brought his status into the studio. Okay. I mean, it came with him anyways, but he didn't bring it. It was what was in us about Ronnie's status that brought it in there. And yeah, Ronnie demanded things, but only because he demanded those very same things of himself. Do you think and he noticed? He noticed how every little thing mattered. Do you every little thing mattered. Sorry. Do, do you think, Craig, that Greg had a vision for how the band was supposed to sound, and no matter what, he was going to get that. Whereas Ronnie would say, "Right, we want to sound like this, but I'm going to let you guys be yourselves as well." Would that be a fair thing to say? No, it'd be flipped. Ah, okay. Yeah, Ronnie knew exactly what he wanted. What he wanted. Sometimes he wouldn't even let me use the amp I wanted to use. If you listen to Time to Burn, the the, the intro will say it all. Um, the first chunks, you know, in the very beginning, 
you know, the dun, dun, kong, 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 right there. It's so aggressive and, 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 and percussive. That was the sound that I liked. And that was the sound that we recorded with, and that was what I thought we were going to use in the studio. But for some reason, he just said no. He wanted me to use a stock JCM-800 Marshall. I don't know if it's because that was the, you know, and I know that he had, Ronnie, even though he was a singer, had a had a um, endorsement with Marshall. But um, a lot of times people will use different gear in the studio just to get a particular sound. And I just couldn't get the same chunk, 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 aggressive bite out of it that I had with my other gear. And that was a big bummer. But it was only because he had a vision and he was not going to, you know, he was not going to give in. Okay. What about when it came to solos for with with Dio? Um, how hands on was he with those with you? I wanted to sound like this. Can you do maybe slow this down a little bit, or did he let you try and do them yourself? Um, most of the time, um, especially in on the on the albums Dream Evil and Magica. Yeah, he would let me. Because that's how we kind of, that's another reason how I kind of got into the band is I would work, the way I would work solos out, he really enjoyed because he was used to doing the comp where the guy would improvise like 10 different times and then they would put it together and it would take like hours sometimes. Like, I think I told you that story when Rough Cut, we had two guitar players and it took three hours for them to construct a little 20 second solo. (laughs) I'm not saying anything bad about anybody. It's just, that's how things were done. Yeah. So when it came time for me, um, they you know they get the headphone mix and got my guitar and and I hear in the headphones, okay, you ready, kid? And, I, and so I said, yeah, Ronnie, I worked something out last night. I was wondering if it'd be okay if we tried if I could try that first. I'm like, ooh, you know. <laughs> he goes, yeah, sure. So I play it and I look over to the because I'm in the same room. I'm in the like the drum room you know, with no drums sitting on the floor. Yeah. And uh, I look over into the into the control booth, and they're laughing. So he talks to me, and I hear laughter in the background. I'm thinking, oh, no. He goes, oh, one more time. So I did it again. Now they're laughing even harder. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> goes, uh, just one more time with more confidence. And I thought, what the hell? So I did it again. He goes, come on inside. Laughing, laughing. They're still laughing when I come in. And then he goes, uh, he plays it. He goes, what'd you think? And I go, well, can we hear one of the other ones? And he goes, no. And I thought, oh man, here it comes. Because he loved to teach me lessons, you know, in, in real time. And he looks at me and he goes, F me, kid, you're done. Apparently I had worked it out, a solo that he liked, but I had worked it out so well that three solos combined that sounded like one guitar. Wow. And back in those days, they yeah, now it's no big deal. But back in those days, that was like a big deal. And so, I mean, he would bring in, you know, because at Sound City, they even have a documentary about all the famous people that went in and out of those doors. He would invite anybody just to come in and listen to that solo so he could tell that story. <laughs> he was wow. so proud. It was like, wow, you know, I couldn't believe, you know, he was proud of me. It was like, wow, he, he pulled a drummer from Motley Crue in to play in my solo and tell the story. You know, it was like, wow. That's what, that was one of the reasons that made him, you know, say what he said to me before. If it doesn't work out, you'd be my first choice. That was one of the reasons. Well, so, what was when the it f- came time to Dio solos, he knew 
he knew that he would he could rely on me to come up with something that he could work with. And some of them they kept as is, and some of them we would change. Mm. What was the first song you wrote with Ronnie? It was called Time to Burn. Okay. For, for Dio. Okay. And then the, the songs came pretty quickly with him then. Yeah, because uh, at the time, you know, Viv and Jimmy were really close uh, because Viv was in the band because of Jimmy. Not, I mean, also because of Viv, because he's a fantastic guitar player. Yeah. And I mean, what a sound. I mean, that those first two albums are just absolutely magical. There's no question about that. And um, And under Ronnie's guidance, you know, I didn't understand that some of the solos and some of the sounds and things that happened on that album were mainly under his guidance. Just like, you know, in Dream Evil, I was like, hmm, you know, there's areas where I think, God, that kind of sounds like Vivian in a certain area, you know? And uh, so there's a, I, I, there's a certain, it's almost like when a guy has a type of girl, a lonely date, <laughs> you know, Ronnie has a type, you know, of musician that he'll only work with, you know? Yeah. Mainly because, you know, he's, he wants to be in charge. And he wants to know that these people are so flabbergasted to be working with him that they'll do just about anything he says. Which, okay. You know, I get it, you know, because he's that's his chance to do that. And he also wants to be able to highlight, spotlight new, new, new and unknown musicians. He would do that with magazines. A lot of magazines got their start. A lot of DJs got their start because he would highlight unknown people. Mm. Um, I had Vivian Campbell on a while ago. I did a, a, earlier this year, and I did a whole career chat with him. And one of the questions I asked near the end of the interview was, uh, tell me a funny Jimmy Bain story. So I'm going to ask you, Craig, <laughs> tell me a fu- one that you can tell on the air. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, let's see. Let's, let's see. Jimmy. Oh, what a, what a, he was such a nice man. What a, and what a great player. Yeah. This, okay. Magic. Magica. Oh my God. So there's a spot in a song called um, Lord of the Last Day where we hold this chord. We all have to count to 20 and then hit the next and then hit, you know, hit the first hit. And um, so we're all counting. Jimmy's just walking around with a cigarette in his, in his mouth, almost like he just and that was what Ronnie would say, Jimmy, Bob Bain, and he don't care. It was like, oh, he's not going to get it. He's not going to get it. But it's okay because we're just getting the drums. You know, we're just there for scratch tracks. You know, 18, 19, right? Just nailed it. You know, I mean, just he just pulled it out of the thin air. I mean, he could pick up a, a crap bass that was made from, you know, like toilet paper and make it sound fantastic. And he was just a, such a, a nice man, but it was just so amazing that it was just everything just came so natural to him and that that one moment i'll never forget because i'm thinking he'll never get it he's not he's he doesn't care ronnie but no wonder that's what and i'm i'm i should really be counting <laughs> not thinking about whether or not he's counting <laughs> <laughs> i practically missed the damn thing because i thought he was going to miss it <laughs> yeah yeah so before i leave you go craig i have to ask um how did you end up writing lady look with david lee roth well, that's an interesting story, too, because um, a lot of those things came from failures. Um, in fact, I'm looking at my the gold record. It was, that's where I got my first gold record, was Lady Luck from David Lee Roth. At one point, uh, me and David Glenn A. were working together again and on some stuff. 
And back then, when there was real record companies and real record company executives, a guy named John Kolodner, who was pretty much the reason why Aerosmith got back together and did their thing in the early 80s, and uh, Whitesnake yeah. because of John Kolodner. So at one point, when John Sykes left Whitesnake, um, John Kolodner wanted David Glenn Isley to be the singer of Blue Murder. And he wanted me to be the new guitar player for Whitesnake. So he calls me at home and says, kid, don't sign anything. Just wait. I want You're going to be the next guitar player in, in Whitesnake. And he said the same thing to Isley. He goes, come down. I want you to audition because you're perfect for this. And you're going to be the new singer of Blue Murder. So um, it didn't work out with Blue Murder. And Steve Vai comes along and, you know, there's just, there's no, there's no, that's a no brainer, you know, because Steve Vai can do anything. And he was such a much bigger box office draw than I was. So, of course, they're going to go with Steve Vai. So John Kalodner says, well, hmm. Let's put Isley and Goldie back together again and stick them in the studio. But he didn't tell us he's looking for a kind of a bad company town. He just sticks us in the studio. So when we come up with some music, he's disappointed because we didn't give him a bad company sound. But, okay, well, it would have been nice if he told us. <laughs> but there was, a, there was a song on there that was really cool. And so I gave it to the publisher who I was working with at Warner Brothers. So the very next day... The phone rings and my girlfriend picks it up and looks at the phone like the president of the United States is on the phone. She hands me the phone and I hear, hey man, Dave Ross here, love your shit, man. Here's my producer. We want to get together and write. So at the time, it was Bob Ezrin, who I didn't really know his catalog back then so well. I just remember listening to the black, I mean, the Pink Floyd album that he produced with Carmine Apice on drums. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, there's Bob Ezrin and David Lee Roth want me to come over and write with them. And it was because of that demo that got turned down by John Claudner. Okay. So I go and meet with them, and Dave's like, he gives me his home address. You know, the meeting goes really well, so he gives me the home address, and I work with him on a daily basis for three months. He's got his band downstairs in the in, in the rehearsal room with all the Van Halen road cases it was amazing. And I'd be upstairs playing in my ideas and he'd send which one that he liked downstairs for them to learn. And then I'd go down and, and work it out with them. And he was doing a, a really incredible thing where he was writing and recording 25 songs. So that way he could pick the best ones that came out of that process to re-record as the album. And mine happened to make it. Um, I want to. I want to ask you, Craig. You said Rot's band was there. Was that the band I played on the record, including Jason Becker? Yes. In fact, believe it or not, this is crazy. Uh, they called me when Jason joined the band. They actually called me down to David's house to teach Jason how to play that riff because he didn't like the way Jason was playing the riff because mine was kind of staccato, like a Blackmore thing. Okay. And I mean, I was like, are you kidding me? I thought it was almost, I was looking at the calendar to make sure it wasn't April 1st, you know, you know, for an April Fool's thing or something. But I went down and there was Jason and I was like, dude, you know, <laughs> I can't teach you anything, but I understand that it's, they're, they're telling me something. So he plays the riff and I go, oh, it was as simple as he was legato and I was staccato. 
So the riff that's supposed to go dun 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 dun, you know, he's going la 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 la. He's singing it instead of dun dun, you know. Yeah. And that was the main difference. There was a couple other little things. It was finesse things that you know. I mean, dear lord, you know, he's he's loaded with finesse and skill. It wasn't. It was just a particular way to play it that they liked that they wanted him to emulate. That's all it was. What about the, what the, about the what thing? About, was weird is that through that we were both sitting down and he kept saying, "Oh, my back hurts." And then uh, like a couple of weeks later, yeah, there we were, you know, all of us gathered together doing a, um, a, 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 trying to raise money for, for Jason. I have to, I have to ask the question then after that, because I saw that tour in Dublin and it was one of the first shows that Rot did. And of course, Joe Holmes was playing guitar. Right, and I'm thinking you're you're bringing all this up now that you wrote with Rot for three months. The band was downstairs. Why did did Rot not call you to see if you were available to play on the tour? Well, no, actually, he wanted me to be in the band to begin with, and I'd been a sideman for so long. I really didn't want to be a sideman, and to be really honest, really straight, you know, I can tell you straight is that I knew I wouldn't. I would, there's no way I was going to be the right guy for that gig because Steve Vai, I mean, come on, you know, that guy can play anything. And so he's going to ask me to do things that I'm just not good at. I'm just playing. Not, I'm not the right guy. So I had to kind of nicely say somehow that I'm not your guy, but that just made him want me all the more. He was, I was almost like he was dating me. He'd take me out to dinner and drinks and, take me kickboxing and go all these places because he really wanted me to be his guitar player. But, you know, it was like, ah, this is this, you know, I know if I join the band, I'm just going to get replaced. Yeah. It'll come out eventually that I'm not the right guy. Mm. But that's, I think that's what made him want to write with me and work with me because for some reason he wanted me in the band. And, but we became friends too through that whole thing. After every day we were done, we'd sit outside and we'd talk and hang out and, he had a three-level backyard where one level was his pool. And, on, and that pool was surrounded with all those little cliff, those rock climbing things. So there we are together, rock climbing on, on his little rock climbing thing, going around seeing if we, if we could go all the way around the pool without, you know, without stopping, that kind of stuff. You know, wow. it's, just, you know, it's like being the force gump of heavy metal. <laughs> I have an interesting story for you, Craig. If you have a minute about rock, oh, yeah, about, rock about rock and rock and rock climbing, you know, Little Mountain Sound Studios in Vancouver. I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. So they had that was famous for its drum sound that it got. Right. And uh, Motley right. Motley Crue recorded there, and you know Metallica, and they they got the they got the sound for they had a, a loading bay. And in the in the loading bay, they'd opened the door from the studio, and it was it was a natural reverb, so it gave this huge big drum sound. Um, <laughs> wow. So Bob Rock, I some I did a project on Little Mountain, so I interviewed people that worked there, and I think it was the owner of the studio told me a story when Rot was recording the record, a little late <laughs> enough in up there. Um, Bob Rock was in the en- in the engineering room, and he was like, "This doesn't sound right." He went out to the loading bay. Rot had put a climbing wall in the loading bay, altering the sound. <laughs> and the only, the only reason, the only reason I'm telling you this story is you, you started talking about rock climbing with with David Lee Roth. Oh, oh my God, that's right. I forgot that they switched. 
they switched producers and went with Bob Rock after Bob Ezrin. Yeah, and they went yeah. up. They went up to Little Mountain in Vancouver and did it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, oh, that sounds about right. You know, <laughs> yeah, that he would just yeah he'd want to stay in shape so bad that he wouldn't even realize that it's you know it's altering the drum sound. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that it was because he had faith in in Bob Rock that whatever circumstances they recorded in the, that the sound would be great. Because I really don't think that David Lee Roth is, did it out of um, being irresponsible or selfish, because he was a very nice man. Yeah, so tell me something about Roth that that surprised, surprised you about him. Yeah, because, well, I mean, when I. <laughs> He was so nice. He was such a gentleman. He was always like, hey, how you doing? You rubbed my back. Hey, how you doing? Can I get you anything? Can I do anything for you? And I remember hearing those words from Ronnie. Hey, you know, but he would say that to the fans. Hey, how are you doing? Can I get you anything? Can I do anything for you? And it was just like, wow, you know, and we'd be upstairs. He'd be on his on his treadmill and headphones. I'd play him some ideas and he'd go, that's bad, man. That's bad. And he'd hand it to this guy who lived on the in the guest house and he'd send it downstairs. They'd learn it and we'd go on to the next one. And But there was something really cool on the, on the front gate of his home. He had a sign that said, nothing in here worth dying for. <laughs> <laughs> did he have Did he have a lot of Van Halen memorabilia in his house? Yes, downstairs there was all these Van Halen road cases and all sorts of Van Halen stuff, but um, uh, not in the main home. Okay, it was just like a regular home. It was, he was he was he was a really nice man, and he was he was just he was he was David Lee Roth. Don't get me wrong; that's not a character he puts on. That's really him. But when he's at home, he doesn't have to perform, so he doesn't have to go into performance mode. He can just be himself. And it was, but there was an element of that. You know, he was a very, very funny man, very intelligent, very kind. One of the, I remember, I'm going to name drop here, but Jimmy DeGrasso, the drummer, I remember interviewing him years ago and he played with Roth and I asked him about one thing, the same question I asked you, it was what, what surprised you about Roth? And the one thing he said was, he's a lot more musical than a lot of people think. Yeah, there that, you go. That he'll hear something and Jimmy would say, wow, you actually heard that. And David would say, yeah. He'd pick stuff up that you, you, you'd yeah. think, no. Because Roth has this reputation of being, he's all front man. You right. know, everything is a show that he's That's not, right. a, he's not really that musical, but, he actually, right. but he actually is. That's right. I, I can absolutely 100% can back him up on that statement. That's a very good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. So, Craig, I could talk to you all night, but... <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> you, right, so tell people where uh, people can get in touch with you, buy the Resurrection Kings record, all the good stuff. Uh, well, um, right now, uh, I wish I was doing more stuff on Facebook and stuff like that, um, but um, it's pretty it's pretty easy because, uh, I mean... It, streaming <laughs> you know so yeah there's the, you know they can find it you know on facebook resurrection kings page they can find uh through uh frontiers uh the record company their 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 website and uh itunes amazon um spotify i hate to say but you know you asked me the question so i'll tell you mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that, that's pretty much everywhere it and um it's pretty easy you know to to access if they want to mm. and what are, what are you working on now 
Uh, well, actually, I'm getting ready to start writing with Diego from Dream Trial, from Dream Child, and but I'm not quite sure if it's going to be a Dream Child album yet or not. Okay, excellent. But he's been sending me some ideas that are absolutely amazing. Mm. Mm. He's a killer singer. I remember hearing Helker, Helker a few years ago, and I'm like, "Yeah, how is this guy? Is just incredible." Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he and he's a super nice man. Super nice man. Mm. Well, hopefully, when that comes out, Craig, I'll have a chance to get you on, and we'll talk again. Absolutely, I'd love that. Thank you so much, man. I just, it all came back to me as soon as I heard your voice. Like, oh, <laughs> man, of course. I love this guy, man. The funny, the fun, I'll tell you something. I'll finish up with this, right? I, I've yeah. done, I've done two interviews recently, and you remembered who I was, and Tommy Bolin, who's a guitar player who played right. with, who played with Warlock, and he's. Yep. Uh, he remembered who I was as well, and that hardly ever happens. So really, <laughs> yeah, no people are like, no. are you kidding me? Oh yeah, that's cr- well. I guess people's egos are so well. I suppose because they're talking about themselves that they don't happen to notice who the hell's asking them the questions. Uh, the, the, the accent might they might say, "Oh, I've talked to you before," because they're. I think they're expecting someone to be from the U.S. when they call. Uh, on this on this um, time zone, the way we did it, yes, that's what threw me off too. Yeah, um, it was the time zone that threw me off. But but when you said I interviewed you with Dreamchild, I was like, wait a second, I know this name. But as soon as I heard your voice, I'm surprised because you know, quite honestly, I don't get interviewed by people with a, a Irish accent. Okay. So that would be you know to be so. I, it could have been really easy for me to fake it, you know. But you are too smart for that. You'd smell you'd smell that a mile away. Mm, did you? So I'd have to say, dude, you know, you sound so familiar. You said that we we. We we talked before in the Dream Child. But I, I I know that accent, but I don't. Re- it'd be so you're not forgettable. I don't know where these other people are coming from <laughs> and, because you're so smart. You got such a kind heart. You got such a great uh, sense of humor. Uh, the way you put things, and what, how you ask, and why you ask. You know, because you you are so strategic. You know, people just think you know you're asking questions to ask questions, but you have a strategy. You know, it's just it's it's just a joy, absolute joy. Mm. Craig, did you ever play in Ireland? Uh, yes. Okay. It's one time, one time. Yeah. I had I had a ticket to see you play the, and it was the Holy Diver when they did the full record, and you couldn't do the tour, and Doug Aldridge stepped in. Right. Um. When was the other time you played in Ireland? Can you remember? Oh, it was that was it. Just the one time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Ah, oh, well, you might get back there sometime. Oh, I would love it. I would love it. <laughs> I'll never forget being able to stay at Lumley Castle outside of Scotland. Okay. When we were trying to, you know, on our way, working our way towards there. Yeah. I can't remember the the the, the area that we played in in Ireland, but I know that we. I I myself have only been there once. It must have been in Dublin. Must have been. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Craig. Well, it's been a pleasure. Yes, absolutely. Me too. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. And have a good rest of the night. You too, Richie. Thank you so much. No problem. Take care of yourself. Okay, buddy. All right. All right. All right. Thanks. All right, that wraps up two weeks of chat with Craig Goldie. And uh, it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, we got him on to talk about the Skygazer CD from Resurrection Kings. And believe it or not, I, you know, I, I took a shot up to uh, the U.S. Frontier store, sold out, which uh, I don't, it's kind of good, right, that uh, it did sell out here in the U.S. off of Frontiers. Uh, still available on the European shop. And um, 
then I was figuring, well, heck, if it's sold out from the U.S. store, then it's probably sold out at places like Amazon. But believe it or not, Amazon still has Resurrection King's uh, Skygazer in stock as well. So if you want to pick up yourself a copy of the CD, you can either head to the uh, European Frontier Shop or up to Amazon or just, you know, put your Google food to work and uh, see where else that uh, you may be able to get it. Just fucking Google it. Yeah, just fucking Google it. But again, always great to have Craig on because the guy has such a great history with so many bands. And even like, you know, talking about it this week, touring with Black uh, Black Sabbath, with Deep Purple and with Foreigner and something, a lot more stories with this guy. And uh, hopefully we'll dig in again with uh, more stuff from Craig because uh, we, you know, we keep going to the well. We had him on for episode 400 with our tribute to Ronnie. Back again the last two weeks and still more great stuff we've never heard from him. And, you know, definitely, you know, go out, look at what some of those deals are this month as well for buying great metal. You know, all kinds of stuff are coming out now. You just had, uh, you know, Black Label Society, great vinyl packages out there, a couple different versions. I think I bought them all, you know, so good stuff there with Doom Crew coming out. There's lots of other new stuff coming out as well. Some great releases that came out for Record Store Day this year as well. Some cool stuff, including a nice uh, Live in Madrid deal from Motorhead. So good stuff there. So I definitely keep your eyes out for some great deals. And, and even if, you know, if you're looking for gear, lots of manufacturers this time of year always do put that stuff. I will say I'll give a big shout out to uh, J Rocket Audio where they had a sale on a lot of their B-Stock stuff. And there still could be some stuff left up there. But I did, uh, I did pick myself up a uh, one of the Touch Overdrives. It's pretty cool, like it. And uh, they actually sent me a whole other pedal for nothing. And uh, I can't get a better deal than that. So in J Rocket, they definitely have some great pedals. If you're looking for a Primo clone of the Klon, then their Archer is a great one to get. But good stuff from uh, from J Rocket. And you know, the other thing that drives me crazy, I'll rant about it, is. Here's a small company that's still putting stuff out, and you have, you know, other small companies like Daredevil, another favorite of mine. They're, you know, got stuff coming out regularly. They have stock and all that. But again, still waiting for my boss, FZ1W from Boss, you know, probably biggest pedal company in the world. Still waiting. And uh, I also ordered up a great new release from uh, JHS. Um, off of one of my regular vendors called the Pack Rat. If you love the rat, go check out the Pack Rat that uh, Josh and team did an incredible job of packing just amazing variations of the rat all in one pedal. It's not modeling. It's just a bunch of circuits shoved in this one little package. And so when you switch over, you're literally switching over to a whole circuit and emulating another version of the rat. Although I really can't call it emulating because you're literally using active real circuitry. And the rat's always been a favorite of mine. So it's been great to see all these different versions that he's got in there, as well as, you know, these kind of modded versions that have been out there in the marketplace as well. But again, looking forward to it. It's just like the Bonsai and the Mufaletta, great pedals, but I'm still waiting. And uh, so, again, you know, they're not huge, but they are definitely getting bigger. But I can't believe, you know, still waiting to just to get a damn pedal. And what I can't even figure out is they made in the top 20 list of best-selling pedals of 2021 on Reverb. And I don't even know how they can do that. Either they sold so many, it's incredible, but 
I ordered in the first week. I'm still waiting. But some of these other guys, they've got some great bargains out there, some great offerings. So check that out. All right. Rant over. So uh, with that, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember. Focus on Metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.